0: Uh, slight change, we're doing a bit of a recap episode, so it's an episode that you might have missed, it's one of our favourites, and it's with the wonderful David Morrissey. Now, this week, David stars in the third series of Britannia, which is on Sky and Now TV, do give it a watch. But more importantly, and a big shout out to Independent Podcasts here, David, uh, I think maybe last year started a new podcast. It's called who am I this time? He speaks to actors about like one certain role. It may not be the role they're most famous for, but it's certainly very interesting. I was driving back from Brighton last week and he had on the legend that is David Warner. Um, I urge you to give it a listen. It is, uh, really fantastic. Um, Dave seems David's a bit of a natural interviewer as well as being an exceptional guest. Um, so do get your ears around this. Now, look, nothing to do with myself or David or podcast or anything. If you do need some new television, I urge you to watch a new series uh, which is on Sky and TV at the moment. We're not being sponsored by them. Um, it's called The White Lotus. It's written by Mike White who wrote a really dark, dark film years ago called Shock and Buck. Um, but you'll probably know him better for starring in School of Rock. Uh, he also wrote it, directed by Richard later, obviously. Great film. But yeah, check out The White Lotus. There is six episodes, all available to watch right now. And it will probably be making your uh, TV of the year list, no doubt. Um... Right, back next week with brand new episodes. And uh, let's uh, roll back the years. No, it's only been a year, hasn't it? Let's uh, let's go back in time ever so slightly and sit down with the exceptional David Morrissey. Griff was saying to me just before I came down to get you that I had forgotten about this that when we first started planning the podcast, we always draw up a list of who, and you were on our first list. Was I? Yeah, and now we've finally got it together. There you go. After all this time. Busy, man. How are you?
1: I'm good, yeah, really good. I mean, it's been uh, a wild old year, but yeah, it's good. Good to come to the end. I'm looking forward to New Year.
0: Start start things afresh.
1: Yeah, got, uh, yeah moving into a new house, so all that, so yeah, feeling good. The upheaval. Although sometimes it's quite exciting. The mood. Actually, I'm really enjoying it. I mean, it's sort of. I made that decision that I'll throw things away when I unpack.
0: (laughs) So take it with you.
1: (laughs) So taking everything with me. But actually, I'm finding it really cathartic. Actually, yeah, exciting. I'm finding it exciting.
0: Do you find that when you start new jobs? Do you like that? Right. We finished that job, and I put all that energy and effort into it, and we had that character, and we had that time, and that's gone now. Mm. Do you do you like that feel of starting afresh?
1: I all do. The time? Yeah, I like. I'm a bit of a stationary geek, so every script I have, I cut up and sort of, you know, I highlight my stuff. I do all that, so, and then I, what I will do is I'll put it into a book, an exercise book, quite a big book, and then I'll do lots of notes in the front of that, and then you'll get to the script. So I quite like that buying of this the new. Book a bit like a new diary, but a, a new exercise book to start a new character is always quite exciting. I quite like
0: that. It's like starting a, having a new school book for the new the new term in new it class. Is,
1: yeah. And that idea, and you never know where it will take you. You know what I mean? That sense of just not sure, not making any decisions, just absolutely sort of having a blank page. And then I'll start filling it with stuff like you know I'll read the script lots and lots, but I'll, I'll fill it with photographs of things that. I just evoke, so a bit of a mood bit. Yeah. And I'll start writing a bit of a backstory and stuff like that and then breaking the script down. And then when you, very often this happens right at the last minute, you'll get your shooting schedule. So you don't really know how it breaks down day by day or week by week until the last minute. And then what I'll start doing is working on my first week's work. And usually what I do is that I don't touch... The the scenes I'm doing in the first week, what I do is the scenes before the scenes I'm shooting. So I'll always work on the stuff that has happened that I, I haven't shot yet before I walk in the scene, Work on the scenes that I'm about to do. So it's always about where I've been rather than what I'm actually
0: doing. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And how was school for you growing up, David?
1: It wasn't great actually. I was uh, I was not academic. I didn't really get on with school. I I changed schools a lot, because it was around about when my parents were moving. So I went from one junior school, which was fine. Well, I don't have a lot of memories about that, but I think it was okay. And then we went to this other school and we were Catholics and we couldn't get into the local Catholic school. So my mum and dad put me into the local C of E school, which was nice, actually, and very close. But I always knew it was transitory until a place came up in the... In the, the, in the Catholic school.
0: school, right. And, and what, where, was it whereabouts in Liverpool was this? So
1: we moved, We lived in a place called Kensington, which was not far from the city centre. Right. And then we moved to Nottyash. Hill. It was one of these new estates. So the, the place we grew up in was condemned, really. My grandmother had been married there when she was, like, a little girl. You know, when she was sort of 19 or something, she'd been married there. And she'd grown up in that house. So it was quite an old place. It had a... Excuse me. No worries. Yeah, it was quite an old place. It had a, it had a you know, toilet in the backyard. It's not inside the house. No bathroom. Yeah. So it was one of those places, and there were seven of us in it. What's the seven? Yeah, and a couple of cats. So all that was a bit... It was a, it was a bit so it needed to go. Yeah. I'm not, I don't have any romanticism about that. But where they put us was these new estates, you know, There was they were all springing up all over, really. There was, like, places like Netherly and Scamsleydale and stuff like that. Yeah. And ours was in Notting And we went there, and that's sort of Duffcott, Old Swan, Heighton area, really. And, uh, yeah, that was... And my brothers left at that point as well, really. My, my brothers had grown up by then.
0: And where were they off to?
1: So they were off to university and college and stuff like that. And then I, I left the C of E school and I went to a Catholic junior school and that's where I first started doing drama. That's The teacher at that school, was, the drama teacher, was really great. And we did The Wizard of Oz and we did you know, Joseph and his amazing technical dream coat and all the classics. And I played the the scarecrow in, in The Wizard of Oz, and I loved it. It was great. In my class, there'd been a lot of lads who were good at football and stuff like that. And even though I enjoyed football, I wasn't great at it. Yeah. But that thing of um, performing, I really liked. And then I failed my 11 plus, and I went to the secondary modern that was attached to my junior school. And that was more or less like the school in Kes, really. You know, it was it was just mayhem. It was just. Uh, my memory of it was it was fun just kids running riot but we didn't have any learning there was no i mean one of the things that was really my big memory of that time is you would never put your hand up in class to answer a question you know you would never stand out your whole thing so there was no sense of academic achievement you didn't want to stand out in a way even if you knew the answer to something you weren't going to be the swat
0: keep quiet yeah
1: or make a joke or take the piss, you know, that was the thing. And, uh, and during that time, my dad was very ill. My dad was yeah, got ill when I was about eight, really. And uh, during that time, it sounds like a bit of a violin moment, This, but it's not. I mean, there was a point in there that I thought, when was I last happy, you know? And the last time I'd been happy was when I'd done The Wizard of Oz. So I decided to sort of seek out more stimulus like that. And I tried boxing for a bit, and that wasn't... I was never going to be a boxer, I just didn't have the skill, although I loved the, the world of it and I loved the training. Uh, but I certainly didn't have the killer instinct. And then uh, I discovered the Everyman Youth Theatre, which was attached to the Everyman Theatre in, in Liverpool. And that was it. As soon as I went through that door, I, I felt that it was... My world, my tribe.
0: My and how tribe. old were you then? What so then I been about
1: 14, 15.
0: And was this a weekend thing going after school? So though? it
1: was Tuesday and Thursday nights and then sometimes. But what happened was it became all encompassing for my life. You know, that's where I met my friends. And we'd all hang out nearly all the time. And we'd hang out around the theatre mostly all the time. The theatre had a bar downstairs called the Everyman Bistro and that sort of tolerated us.
0: <laughs> and we just hang out.
1: And then there was a cafe around the corner called Cafe Tabac, which was at the top of Bowl Street. We just, we'd spend like four hours over a cup of tea, you know. And we'd just talk and write. And it was the first time I'd met people of different uh, sexual orientations to me, different color, you know, things like that. It was the first time I'd met people who were very, very different from me, different class sometimes as well. And it was a real mixture. And it was wonderful. And it was that thing for me of, I suddenly got a confidence in myself which I took back into the education system. I would take it back into school and suddenly I would put my hand up and suddenly I would ask questions. Suddenly I was more curious. And that's the thing for me now is the fact that I always feel that the idea that in our state school system, music, art, drama, they're all seen as soft options. Yeah. And it really angers me. It makes me angry that in the sense that it doesn't... It takes no... Account of good citizenship, you know the thing about the art is it it asks you to walk in other people 's shoes. It gives you empathetic skills and uh, and this concentration on the on the more academics life i 'm not saying you should ignore that at all, but the more concentration on that, the more I think it 's an automaton sort of being that you 're creating right? you see
0: the thing is the two can work hand in hand because exactly. as you've just pointed out there. You didn't have that confidence in the academic studies to put your hand up, right? Mm. Suddenly, you, you're hanging out with like-minded people. You're hanging out with people who are in your tribe, who get you, mm. do, who feel different, and then you take that back in, and suddenly you're putting your hand up. So that you, it breeds the confidence. You Tot- know, you yeah. don't have to do drama at school because you want it. You want to go down that path for a career, mm. but it will help. Totally, and, and to shut that door on the kids is
1: terrible. And also that sense of. Sure, no one's, not everyone's going to be an actor or a, a, a painter or a musician, but um, that education means that you breed good audiences, you breed intelligence, emotional intelligence, you breed people uh, curiosity yeah. and appreciation of other things. And the other thing, you know, the, one of the other things I've always been very, very grateful for is I grew up in a city that took the arts seriously. You know, Liverpool really did. Of course, we all know about its musical history, but it took the arts seriously. It had great libraries and and museums and art galleries and stuff like that. And and so whenever I told my mates, once I'd made the decision, (coughs) whenever I told my mates that I wanted to be an actor, you know, it wasn't received like I was an idiot or, you know, I had ideas above my station or anything like that. It was, you know, know, people accepted it. They didn't know how, how I would go about it. They had no way of helping me. And my parents, when I told my parents I wanted to be an actor, they, it's not that they were down on it, it's just that they didn't know how to help me. You know, It was like telling them I wanted to be an astronaut. Yeah. They, didn't, they couldn't phone up my Uncle Tony and say, hey, could you help him out? Give him a apprenticeship. There's not, there, it was just wasn't part of our world. So I, and I'm very, happy, very um, grateful for this, as I had to go and find it myself. You know? And it did exist. The other thing is, when I went to find it, It existed, it was a bus ride away in in the middle of town, you know, that's where the great theatres were, with great people in it, you know, people like Alan Bleasdale and Willie Russell and, you know, and then actors like, you know, Tracy Orman was there when I was there. Was she? She was just amazing. Wow. She she was doing Victoria Wood's talent and she was just amazing. And, you know, and then actors would come around like Pete Pothersway and stuff like that and, you know... It just blew me away. It was just great, great people. You
0: know. Was it constant education and constant inspiration all the time from being there? Because it was such a creative time.
1: It at was, that and moment. also I was amazing because I've met a lot of these actors subsequently and being able to say thank you because that must have been a pain in the ass because I was constantly asking them, asking them questions. They they'd be there, you know, having their lunch or something, or you know, having a pint after the end of the show, and I'd be like, hey, 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 I want to be like actor, I want to be like. <laughs> How'd you do it? How'd you do that? How'd you do this? How'd you? And, and none of them told me to get lost, you know. They all sort of helped me. They all said, well, you need to do this, you need to do that, try drama school, get involved in this, get you know. So that encouragement, just by not telling me to get lost, yeah. was fantastic, you know. And I had the great pleasure of working with Pete Pothelswaite uh, a number of years ago, and I was able to thank him, and he was great, you know. It was like really, real generosity to, to somebody who was a snotty-nosed kid, really. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was the next step then? For there, did you were you so able to then? Uh, when I was about sixty, I left school when I was about sixteen.
0: And what qualifications did you leave with?
1: I had an O level in in um, history and nothing else. I'd failed all my um, CSEs, as they were called. So I went to a different school to resit my O levels, and that was a grammar school. And I was aware about how different it was all boys for a start, but it was uh it was really a grammar school that my brother had gone to years be- before, but I didn't fit in and my dad just before I went there, my dad died, so I was slightly like, "You know, I don't want this I don't you know I don't want any, I'm going to go off and be an actor. I don't want any of this." yeah so it was like a, a false year for me. But there was one teacher, Mr Phillips, who was our history teacher, and he was a genius. He was just great at inspiring you via story rather than dates and times and all that. You know, he hammered those into you. But really it was about stories, and, uh, and I really responded to him. And he responded to us as well, you know. I mean, his class did really, really well. So that was the only O-level I did. But just at that time, uh, the Tory government brought in this thing called uh, YOP. Uh, Youth Opportunity Program, and that was basically to try and get the you know, unemployment figures down. And they would pay companies to bring in young people who'd left school without qualifications uh, to give them apprenticeships. But actually, it was it was really uh, abuse. So most companies, a lot of companies, would bring you in and just get you to make the tea and send you out for sandwiches. And then once your time was off, they'd get rid of you yeah. and go but the other thing they brought in at that time was the YOP, was it was this, uh, Norman Tebbets had made this speech about, you know, when my grand granddad couldn't get a job, he got on his bike and went looking for a job. So then the government had to back this up about, you know, sort of basically advocating people should break up their families. <laughs> so uh, he they brought in this YOP scheme, which was away from home. So if you got a job like that, but it was in another city. You would get paid 25 quid rather than £23.50. And I went in and I just said to this guy, you know, I want to be an actor. What have you got? And there was a theatre company in Wolverhampton called Zip Theatre Company, and they were looking for people like me, you know, yops. And I said, okay. And I, so that was it. I moved down to Wolverhampton. I got a little bed sit. And you were, like, 17 at this point? About boys. 17. Oh, okay. 16, 17, actually. And I had a little bed sit with a baby belling cooker in it and you know all that and i went to work at this theater company with a couple of other mates from liverpool who also applied (coughs) and uh and yeah it was it was a real eye-opener it was an eye-opener not so much from a professional point of view but from a personal point of view but just about how i looked after myself you know how i cooked how i washed my own clothes how i you know my own environment how i budgeted my life Things like that, and um, and also you know how I got from one place to another, and all those things. And then in the theatre company itself, we were doing, we were making sets and doing workshops and so. That it was very much a community-based theatre, and we did a couple of shows. But the the big one was we did the pantomime, right? And we went round. We would do three or four shows a day, and we would start three in, or a, four in a yeah, day. yeah, in a little van and we would drive around, and we'd build the set, we'd do the show, we'd take it down, we'd put it in the van, we'd go somewhere else, and we did that. And because, you know, we were trying to get as much money as we were, we didn't get paid any more money, we just got paid our basic yop rate. But the theatre company and the guys who ran it, they needed to get the money, so they were they putting in as many shows as they could. And you were being pubs, you know, you'd be in youth centres, junior schools in the morning, and then, sort of in the afternoon, maybe old people's homes. And then in the evening, you'll be in pubs and clubs. Right. And John. Very Lee, different audiences. Very there. different. And John Lingard, who was the dame, who was the head of the. You know, the performance would change as the day went on. And probably as he got a bit more bevied himself, actually. But, you know, it got very bawdy in the evening. <laughs> and it was all very innocent in the morning. And then it would all start again. And it was a great experience for me about, you know, putting a show on your back and just going off and doing it. And then while I was in Wolverhampton, my best mate is an actor called Ian Hart, and he was still in Liverpool. And he'd found out that they were auditioning for this uh, TV show called One Summer, which was about two scouse lads who ran away to Wales. And he phoned me up and said, "Look, you know, come home because the you know they've got they've got some auditions." So I got on a train, I went home, and uh, the first audition was like Miss World. Really, there was about twenty of us with numbers and the casting directors saw us and just went down the line and said okay you know number five number seven number twelve number Oh god so you picked like that to start off you can all stay everybody else can see you later and then you would read a line a couple of lines then they put you it was because it was about two lads they put people together and that went on it felt like it went on for months it probably went on for a couple of weeks and eventually I got the lead role in it and um and it was a life-changing experience
0: and you'd never been in front of a camera though before i you? never
1: done anything like that i'd done a lot of theater with the youth theater but i'd never been on camera and it was directed by a guy called gordon fleming who's sadly no longer with us who's a a big film director you know he'd done big movies and this was just one of the first things that channel four were putting on and he was a tough disciplinarian you know he was no the around you know and that idea of how you tell a story out of out of chronological order yeah. the idea of continuity and i think a lot of people then on on that job took it upon themselves to teach me and and spencer lee who played the other guy to teach us our discipline Really, and they really did and i suddenly and i took to it like a doctor was i just knew then this was what i wanted to do and the main adult actor in it was, again, someone who's sadly no longer with us, was a guy called James Hazeldean. Right. And he was a brilliant actor, and yeah. really brilliant. And he, again, you know, really took me under his wing and he taught me everything I knew at that time. I mean, he. a lot of people were saying to me, look, don't...
0: It's a very strange noise.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he would say to me look you know a lot of other people would say to me look go to dr- don't go to drama school you don't need to go to drama school you've got your equity card now you know just just go into the profession and he was the one person who said to me no go to drama school did he yeah because he said look it'll give you a career it'll show you different things that you can do different ways of working different plays and characters and stuff like that and so I listened to Jimmy thank goodness and I uh, and I applied for quite a few drama schools, but I got into RADA. And uh, before before RADA, I took the money from one summer and I went travelling. I did a bit of travelling around the world. And then I came back and I went straight to drama school here in London, yeah.
0: And would, at that time, would you have got a grant to go to RADA? So
1: what I did was I got a grant to pay for the fees, mm. but I didn't get a maintenance grant, so I didn't get a grant to live off. Right. But thankfully, one summer, still, I still had some money from that. So that paid for me for a while. I worked in I worked in the college itself. I cleaned, we did a lot of cleaning in the morning. So that gave us some, not some money, but it gave us a meal cause there was a canteen there. So we cleaned the canteen and stuff. And so you get a free breakfast and a free lunch for that. So that was great. And then I did some bar work around there as well. So whilst I was at Grado and that, that supported me. And then just as it was all getting a little bit tense financially, which was going into my finals, uh, they repeated once summer on the telly, and that meant I got this residual check, which was more or less my fee again. Perfect. And I was like, I can believe it. You know, that, you're paid twice for a job.
0: Didn't even expect that. I, I wasn't that expecting it, and
1: it came, and uh, so that meant that I could a get through my f- last uh, term at rod but also it supported me coming out into the world for the first year. You know, I was able to sort of take jobs I wanted, and and that was great, you know. And then I sort of was able to support myself as well. How was RADA for you? I loved it. I, I, I really did. I found the first term, I found really difficult. In what way? Well, I found it difficult in the sense that I found London difficult. I found London very expensive, unfriendly, you know... Thing about Liverpool is you get on a bus and sit next to them, by the time you get off you know everything about them. Yeah, you know, and they know everything about yeah. you, you know. It's a chatty place. Whereas when I came to London I'd chat to people and they just looked at me like I'd just, you know, You didn't me get in the anything face. back.
0: No, I didn't get and anything. I remember when I first came out I found it quite an unforgiving city. Yeah. Even though I was this wide eyed sort of seventeen year old from Blackpool mm. and I was going, Oh, the lights, everything mm. I did find it quite unfriendly.
1: Yeah, I found that and just unfamiliar, <laughs> you know. And rent was expensive and, and food and stuff. And so that was tough. I found at RADA that I was... My my own self-deprecating thing was telling me I didn't fit in, that these people were different than me. Then do you think, think that
0: was a... Sorry to interrupt. Do you think that was a class thing? Or yeah. You was, where you were from?
1: It was class, yeah. It was definitely about that. And it was about me thinking... Uh, I'm not good enough for this. You know, these people have a different idea. This is, you know, it's posh. Yeah. And, uh, and I really put myself down in that first year. Well, for not first year, but first term. So I, I would arrive in September. And then we broke for Christmas and I was miserable. And I went back to Liverpool. And I was thinking, I'm going to jack this in. I'm going to sack it off and just stay in Liverpool. And I didn't tell my mom that or my brothers. I was holding it to myself. And I bumped into Paul McGann's mum, who is a wonderful woman. And I just told her. And Paul had gone to Rada. And I just said to her, I'm miserable, you know. I and she just said, stick it out. She said that and Paul felt exactly the same. Just stick it out. And I decided to give it one more time, term. And then when I got back in January to Rada, there was a note in my pigeonhole from Paul saying, hey, I'm doing a play at the Royal Court, come down, you know. So I went to see him and he was so helpful to me, not for the first time either, he'd been very helpful to me in the past. And I went to see him in a play at the Royal Court, which was amazing, and then I went backstage and stuff. So then I started to think, okay, I know people here. And and by that time I got to know my other uh, friends at RADA, sort of got to know them better and... And that was good and and so I, I settled and then i and also i felt i could hold my own you know i was
0: so doing, you got some confidence got back. some
1: confidence back i got we were doing very you know classic theater we were doing shakespeare and molly and stuff like that and i thought oh i understand this i know what i'm doing i, I didn't I expect this to be beyond me but actually, I, I really loved it. And I loved performing, you know. And and I loved the dance classes and the music classes and the, and the camaraderie. I, I really did. And so that was... Um, it felt like I'd really arrived. And I, I knew then, and I, I sort of knew it when I was doing One Summer, really, that I'd chosen the right profession for me. Yeah.
0: Did you find it was making friends easy at RADA? Because, you know, people come from all sorts of walks of life and different backgrounds...
1: It was actually, uh, I mean, it was um, it was intimidating at first, but all that intimidation, as always, is was in myself rather than within other people. Yeah, and when I met those people, and also, rather, had such a mix, you know. So I was in my term, you would look at the term above you, and the term above you, above me, which which was a brilliant term, and they all got on very well, and they were fantastic shows that they did. Ray Fines, Jane Horrocks. You know Ian Glenn, Neil Dudgeon, you know uh, Jason Watkins, you know Imogen Stubbs. So you know there was people from very high parts of society, yeah, and people from places like me, and they all got on, and they were brilliant. And that was uh, that was a real comfort to me to see that you know there was no divide really, and uh, and I loved that. That was great.
0: Well, we always look. Uh, the the other people, or yeah. uh, what well, if they're doing it? And then, uh, well, I'm from not far from there, so therefore, yeah. it's, it's Neil possible.
1: D- Neil Dudgeon. I mean, watching Neil Dudgeon when I first got in, and he was this great northern actor, you know, real man, real great, you know, great range that he had. And I would watch him, and I'd watch him and Ray Fiennes together on stage, uh, both being brilliant, but from very different parts of society. Really great mates, as well. You know, they yeah. were really great mates, and I thought, oh, okay, that's you can do this, yeah. You know, and likewise, in my term, you know, there was uh, men and women from very different uh, backgrounds and, and uh, classes and stuff, and, and we all got on. Yeah, it was great. Were you
0: still as curious? Because you always sound to me that you were very curious back in the day, especially when you're at the
1: everyman and you're asking, you're having these conversations with these fantastic, inspirational actors. Were you as curious at Rada? yes I was and I, and also the great thing at RADA was we were encouraged to go and see shows so we would go and see as many shows as we could you know in the West End but also a lot of you know old RADA graduates then and I would come back you know and you'd see them and that was great so yeah it was um, and London you know I really used I started to use London in that way I would go to a lot of exhibitions and obviously you had to look for the free stuff yeah but there was a lot on offer, you know, and then I would walk everywhere. I mean I'd just walk around London. And, you know, do, you know, those whole Dickensian walk stuffs and and then there'd be places like um the Scarless Cinema. I used to do these all night uh shows where they'd do like a horror all night. And that was great. You'd have a kip join The Shining or whatever <laughs> and then watch, you know, the Blob. And that was great. And I used to watch a lot of movies there. And and being a student, you know, at that time, you could get, a, you know, you could get discounts everywhere. So there was a lot of stuff for me to see, and I really used London in that way. I loved it, actually, and still do. I mean, I, th- I find London a really stimulating place.
0: Well, it is, but I think it's interesting your choice of words about how you use it, how you use London, mm. especially at different points in your life. As a student, you're going to use it very differently to yeah. how you use it
1: now. Yeah. But now I use it, you know, I'm very thankful now about its... Green spaces, you know, that's what I love about Richmond Park, Hampstead Heath. Which there are a lot of. There's loads of them. You know, for a major city, it's brilliant, you know. I mean, I was in New York recently and, you know, they've got the park. That's it. Yeah. You know, I mean, everyone gets out, but that's a major city with one big green space, whereas we've got so many. And Regent's Park at the the moment is what I use mostly and it's just great. You know, it's so great. So, yeah, I do use the city.
0: Were you prepared? Or were you given any tools for, in your finals upon leaving?
1: We had... Um, we had Cause this. It's
0: a, tricky, it's a tricky moment.
1: It is. We, he had this... Uh, we, as I say, we have old students who come back and talk to us. And Clive Mantle came back to talk to us. Big Clive. Big Clive. And he'd, been, he'd left like three or four years before. And he came in to give us a talk. And usually that talk, the way it was built was he would talk about, you know, how your agent is, how you work with your agent, how you find an agent, you know, auditioning stuff. And he didn't do any of that. He came back and he taught us how to sign on (laughs) (laughs) and how to sign on. And then if you've got a day's work, how to claim for that day's work without signing off completely, things like that. And it was a really practical sort of, and some, some people in our town were outraged by it. Really? Yeah, they were really pissed off about the fact that he'd done that. And I went, that's brilliant.
0: I think it's brilliant. Just
1: exactly what you need. And then he would talk about agents and how you get them and stuff like that. But that was his main focus. And I met, again, I met him years later and said, thanks very much. He said, I can't remember any of that. But it was <laughs> brilliant at them do, at doing that. So, yeah, we were sort of guided. I mean, the other thing they do at Radha, and they do it in most drama schools, is you have this one evening called a tree evening, which is where you you do two pieces, either a monologue or a duologue or whatever, and they invite all the agents from London and casting directors and stuff. So it's a massive audition, yeah. You know, and uh, and you know if you get that wrong, it can it doesn't matter what you've done in the last couple of years, you know. And uh, that was a good night for me, I have to say, but. um Then you're inviting lots of people to your final shows. In the finals at Yotrard, or like most drama schools, you're just doing shows, really. You're not doing classes. And you're writing and trying to get agents to come along and stuff like that. And I got an agent after the tree evening quite early on, so I knew that in my last two or three shows, I, I, I was secure with an agent. And I got a job quite soon after that. But, yeah, I mean, you did get a lot of guidance about how to go out into the world. But nothing can, nothing really can prepare you like the experience itself, you know, that's the thing.
0: But it's that exciting moment of graduation that you just want to get out of there, you just want to work, and luckily you did get a job straight away. Yeah.
1: and it's also that strange thing when you get your first job out a drama school that if there's a part in it for an old person, it's played by an old person. Yeah. Like, <laughs> not not your mate with a, with a grey beard on. And, so things like that was really weird. And my first job after drama school was I had to go and do a Nigel Williams play up in Liverpool, in, at the playhouse in Liverpool, called WCPC. And the first, so it was quite, it was a brilliant play. And I play this young copper who is uh, obsessed with the fact that, you know, all the people around him are, are gay and are breaking the law. And he sort of finds out that everybody is gay in the, in the play. And he and I had to sort of, um, I had to kiss a bloke. I had to get wanked off by a bloke. I had to go, I had to dress up as Liza Minnelli in Stockings and Suspenders uh, from Cabaret, do that. I had to sort of strip off at the end and sing YMCA by Village People. (laughs) And this was back in my hometown. And my mum came to see it with my Auntie Pat, and I was like, oh, God. Uh, And then afterwards I saw her, and God love her. The only thing she said to me, she looked at me, she went, have you been eating properly? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, thanks, Mum. So that was wild. But, yeah, so that was really, really tough. It was a strange show. But it was fun, and it was great to come back to Liverpool, do that. And then, yeah, and then after that I did a play at Stratford East, which I loved, and then...
0: Did you find yourself just constantly learning from job to job? Totally,
1: totally. And then the big thing for me was then I got a job with Cheek by Jowl. Right. And we went on tour for a year, really. (laughs) And we did Twelfth Night and uh, El Cid, and um, it was a tough tour. In what way? Well, it was, again, three venues a week. And the venues could be like Newcastle, Bournemouth since St. Edmunds, you know, so you were just on the road all the time. We had a van with us in it, all the company, which was like a minibus. And we had another van driven by the stage manager with all the the uh, set in it. We would have to do the get in and the get out and stuff like that. And uh, it was tough, you know, and it was tough being in a company like that, which was, it was a small company, but you had to be with each other for 24-7, really.
0: Which is a tough ask for anybody. Yeah.
1: And there was a lot of, uh, a lot of fighting, but then a lot of you know, a lot of love going off as well. Then a lot of love fighting, and, <laughs> you know, sort of stuff like that. So it was a big old roller coaster, really. But also, we were a hit. Right. So we did Twelfth Night, which was our big show, and that was a massive hit. And wherever we. were we'd go, we'd be packed out. So that was great. But it was also pressure as well. It was so crazy. And then we came and we went to the Donmar. We ended up at the Donmar Warehouse. And uh, again, we saw that there. So it felt good. And you felt like you were at the center of something really important. Yeah. But it was was hard work. It was graft. Uh, But I did love it. And then after that, I went to the RSC, which again, I just... Adored. Aloe with RSC for. So I was there for two years, really. So two seasons. So I got to Stratford and I worked with Deborah Warner, who I really adored. And she was fantastic. And I did King John with her. And I played the Bastard Falcon Bridge. And that was great. And that, that was like my first big Shakespeare role. I did a Shakespeare role at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And it was a hit. It did really well. And I thought, okay. Okay, this is this is opening up to me now. I I understand this, and my class isn't a barrier, which I thought it was. Uh, again, but that's it,
0: taken quite a long time for that yeah, to realize that it that it, it did, isn't a barrier. Yeah.
1: That it was really made me go. Okay, I mean, I was still in my mid to late twenties, but I I realized, and this was with Deborah. Really, Deborah's help was I realized that you know there was nothing I couldn't do in classical theatre. You know, it wasn't the domain of um, posh people. Exactly. You know, it yeah. felt, felt like it was able to sort of really participate in in this great language and these great stories, and also, you know, in that in that season, and also in that production. Actually, was Ray Fiennes. You know, and him and I would have these scenes where we'd have to have this banter with each other, just like these massive verbal battles. And it was wonderful, you know, it was he and I, and, and uh, I'd always known he was a great Shakespearean actor. I'd seen him at Rod, and he was, you know, he was in, in the other play was in Much Ado and stuff at the, in the company. But with this play, you know, he played the Dauphin, and I played the Bastard Falconbridge, and we would have this standoff. And it was wonderful, it was great. And it was a real uh, eye-opener to me of, of playing with the language, A, just understanding it, but also just enjoying it and and luxuriating it and and sort of having the whole uh, ability at your fingertips to play, and and that was... I loved that. But if you're given the freedom... Yeah, it was a real, really great freedom that Deborah gave us. And, yeah, I loved that. And that, again, was a big hit. So I was sort of on cloud nine, and then I came to the National, and I did Pierre Gint, which Declan Donnellan, uh, who... uh, did um, Cheap by Joe who ran Cheap by Joe. He directed it, and it bombed.
0: Well, I was going to say, you're dealing with the first hit, the second hit, yeah. how do you deal when it's absolutely
1: bombs? So that was the biggest lesson I ever had. And actually, I must say, in my life, things that have, you know, it's hard even to call them failures, but things that have not been well received have been where all my great lessons have been learned. And we did peer again, we had something ridiculous like sixteen weeks rehearsal. And it just was crazy. And in the end, I think we left the the good play in the rehearsal. room. And it had a lot it was in the Olivier Theatre, it had a lot of bells and whistles on it, you know, there's lots of scene changes and all that. And and it didn't do well. And then we had to perform it. Then you know, we just from then on, you know, it opened. Not great reviews. We were being in the Olivier, which seats what, two thousand people. Yeah, it's all massive. So we come in there'd be about you know, hundred people there. Oh. And I was always saying, can't you just get them to sit together. Can't just yeah. get them to sit <laughs> in the middle, you know? But they'd be Couple all over, over the place. <laughs> and actually, what was great about it was, I then really started to play. And my, my real philosophy then started to emerge that actually, not that the audience don't matter, of course they matter, but in the end what you're doing it for is yourself. That actually there's something inside these stories that you're challenging yourself with. That it's what am I trying to achieve? Have I done this tonight? I mean, you have to be aware of the audience and you know, you're, you're there to give it to them. But you're driving it, they're not driving. And that's the thing for me. And, and, and in the end, the great thing about Peer Gimp was I loved it because I started to grow and change during the produ- production. I started to change things that I'd been locked into in rehearsal and thought, I don't like this. I'm gonna And really finding new things for me every night that I could challenge myself with and find new light and, uh, and levity in it and, and sort of suddenly find new darkness in it as well. And I, in the end, I just lived for it. I loved it. I, I never got to the theatre and thought, oh, God, I've got to do this again. It was like, can't wait to get on stage.
0: Yeah, because if it's a slog, then it's and the wrong you thing. know That
1: thing of being on stage is really, you know, for me, it's the great thing. I love it. And I love being on a film set, I have to say, as well. I just adore it. So it's, you know, that, it's not until you're in something that hasn't been well received that you know, God, I really want to do this, because even then you're still up there. And I loved, I really had a a ball doing the the
0: play. But, you know, even throughout life, not just in the careers, when things, it's the things that don't go to plan. Yeah. And that's when we learn, and that's when we grow as humans. Yeah.
1: And are, are you up for the fight? You know, are you up for it? And the other thing, you know, about Peter Gint, was that thing of, I'd go on stage, and I'd think, this is all I'd ever wanted to do. It's all I'd ever wanted to do. So, regardless of what you think of it, I'm living the dream. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is from when I was a kid, this is what I want to do. And here I am achieving it. You know, I'm on the Olivier stage at the National Theatre playing the main role in one of the great plays of all time. You mightn't like it, but I'm still here, you know. And that was it. And I, I loved it. I suppose if you
0: didn't think like that, and you didn't want to grow, and you didn't want to learn, that shit's going to get you down. Yeah, it really is. And where does the, you don't want to be going to that dark place no. all day,
1: every day. No, and I really feel that sense of, when, I'm, when I was on that stage, and, you know, with an empty auditorium, who am I doing it for? It's me and the other actors, and we would just get off on it and just really have a great time. And not, not self-indulgently, but really love what we were doing. You know, and that was great for me. How do
0: you deal with the, the darker times? Because it, it, obviously it hasn't all been plain sailing, because it can't, because that's the precarious nature of this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I inhabit the darker t- t- times too much, I think. I think the main thing for me was I always felt that, um, creatively, that there was no pain, no gain, really. I did feel that I had to inhabit the darker sides of myself. Uh, and I was, I had a tendency to do that, the melancholic side and the depressive side. So I would indulge that a little bit. Too much? Yeah, I mean, that was where my tendency would drag me to, you know. There was, a, there was lots of things from growing up that I would keep very at the forefront of my being rather than sort of trying to deal with it, you know. And there was abandonment stuff and, you know, lots of that. And then I would keep that in me. And, and I had a real fear and a real suspicion of fun, really, or anything that was sort of up or So that I would have this, yeah, I would worry about anything appearing to be frivolous. Uh, because what I wanted, what I was searching for, and I searched for it all the time, is an authenticity. And I think, and I don't think I'm right here. I think I'm wrong in the sense that I always associated authenticity with pain, right? And with uh, depression and sort of loss and stuff like that. That anything that was fun and joyful couldn't be authentic, and then that's bollocks. Yeah. But that's where I was at that I time. In that time, that you know, uh, and even doing comedy, I would look for the darker side of it, really. That's where I, I would find the truth. So that idea of myself of looking for truth and authenticity would drag me down a very dark place, really. And I would and I would indulge that. It was like a wobbly tooth for me. I could just couldn't stop sticking my tooth in it, you know. And it was like that thing of just needing to experience pain, uh, self inflicted pain. You know? I would do that a lot.
0: And when did you when did you break that cycle or we, where were you when do you acknowledge that that's what you were doing and that needed to change
1: I'm not sure i have actually if i'm honest i think i and the acknowledgement is happening now definitely i have the, i have a, an acknowledgement of it and I can see like i don't drink so i haven't drank for fourteen years and I think in that sobriety that I've, that I've emerged into some sort of clarity of Real thinking, but uh, yeah, I'm still prone to it. <laughs> <laughs> I still have a, I still do, do that thing of you know I will watch people who are in the street who are laughing and joking and sort of you know together. I think how do you do? <laughs> well, it, it is a bit foreign to me, but I'm working. I'm working on it, Craig.
0: <laughs> do you embrace happiness?
1: I find it hard. Yeah, I try to. I do. I mean, I'm much better at it now in the last two years, two or three years. I'm much better at it. Um, but uh, for a long time, if I was feeling happy, uh, I would think, oh, hang on a minute, Some, this isn't right. It would, be, it would be an alien feeling. And I'd be trying to work on that. And also, I think, you know, there was a, I, I never wanted to, I always felt that the idea of being content was created death, that, that you, being content in your life was the equivalent of stopping. Right. And I didn't want to stop. I wanted to carry on searching and, and uh, discovering and uncovering stuff. Uh, and so contentment... Uh, slippers and pipe time was just felt like uh, it really did feel like retirement, and what I wanted was uh, I wanted the flux and the mix and i you know so that chaos and, and madness I was slightly indulged in I was wanting to indulge that and create that I felt that that was where the creative heart of me was was in the uh, <coughs> in the the sort of Chaotic dance that I was, I was perpetrating, and I don't think I've just totally lost that. And the, the, you know, the thing about for me as an actor, and I mean, you know, this yourself is, I must like the insecurity of the job because if I didn't, if I didn't like the insecurity, well, then, doing you'd then? be off. You yeah, you, you'd be on the in a desk job somewhere. So I like the idea that I don't know what I'm doing next year. I like the idea that, you know, it could be here, it could be here, you know, it doesn't matter. I like that. But I also like the fact that new characters will come at me and I'll have to work at them and find out about them and sort of find out about their jobs and their lives and, you know, who they are. I love that. And inside there is a a real desire for... um, Movement and, and and sort of chaos and sort of discovery, rather than sitting back and contentment and sort of relaxation. I guess
0: you still got that curious nature that you had way back in school because yeah. you had that confidence. Yeah,
1: and you know, you would say and you could say that underneath all that is a is a a fear of self reflection too much a fear of stopping, a fear of looking inward and dealing with the, the stuff that you haven't dealt with for years and years and years. There is a th- element of that, that you know. for a long time I didn't want to look at uh, things that had happened to me in my childhood. And so what I did was I would go out, I'd be energetic and looking outward and new characters, new things. And I think over the last couple of years I've been able to sort of go, well, hang on a minute, You've been running on empty for a while. So now you have to sort of start building this... And I hate the word healthy. It's not healthy. It's not unhealthy to be the other. Uh, I To look at a more positive aspect of being a grown-up and a fully rounded human being, I guess.
0: Do you think sometimes you used to throw yourself into the work to run away from something else?
1: Yeah, definitely not. But I would not tell myself that i would feel that i was throwing myself in the world into the work to actually uncover you know to pick up the rock and look underneath it of yeah. myself it just so happened that underneath there was uh, was a a very dark place you know and i would indulge that so it didn't feel like i was running away it felt like i was running into the mess it felt like i was running into this sort of um the depression, I guess, Uh, and what I wasn't dealing with was the causes of, because I didn't want to, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to sort of uh, find out the answer. You know, I didn't want to be cured. I didn't want to be uh, free of it. I felt it was my mojo. Yeah. I felt that that was my creative hope. And
0: if you're free of that, then Then you've got nothing left. I'll never be
1: able to work again. Yeah. I mean, it's like when I got sober, I thought, oh, if I get sober, I won't be able to to work again. I won't be able to work without, you know, indulging myself in a drink or whatever, you know. I'm just... and actually that was bollocks it's, you know it just I still had all once, once still, I stopped drinking, still had all the pain <laughs> yeah so you know still doing that but also you know from another point of view that looking at myself thought, I thought I don't I don't want to erase this because this is this is how I work you know these are the questions and of course you still have it all it's not that yeah, yeah it's not that
0: yeah. was there any moment where you thought Because I know what it means to you, and we've already discussed that, so we can tell that what doing this job means Mm -hmm. to you. Was there ever a moment where you went, I I can't deal with this anymore? It has to go. I have to do something else.
1: Yeah. Yes, there was. And that was, um, there's been a few times, if I'm honest. But really honest. I mean, we all go, do you know what? No. Yeah, no, there's been a few times when I've thought, I need to either take a break to sort out personal stuff. Yeah uh and that lasted 5 minutes of my head really yeah you know that was that was an idea I would have and go i can't do that but the time i really thought you know forget it was when i did basic instinct too so i sort of got to a point where i got this major movie with a major film star i was being paid major money and i got into that job and it was like Honestly, it was like you could have said, told me to be a mechanic or something else. It was like a completely different job. Than in, the job in, I in, in what way? Just how everybody approached the job was different. Those big, big movies. Um, time was different. You know, I, I quite, I always hesitate saying this, but I quite like most of our television schedules that we have because it's quick. They are quick. But I feel like I'm on my toes. I'm on my toes, I think, okay, I can get I probably in this scene, if I've done my work properly with a director who knows what they're doing, I can probably get five or six goes at this, and then we might change the angle and that kind of. But that's probably what. I'm doing. So to get on a film set where you're suddenly doing it 70 times, it just drove me crazy, that, you know that you had so much time for a scene you could endlessly discuss it. You could endlessly not turn up, or you could endlessly sort of change the set, or you could... That ability to do everything you wanted sort of killed me creatively. And, the, and then there's a lot of money around, there's a lot of egos around. They didn't feel to me to be this collegiate atmosphere, which I was used to. One of the other things I love about my job is I get a family in a job, you know, I, I'll get I get on a film set or I'll get in the, uh, the theatre company and you'll become so close to those people. So quickly. Really quickly. Yeah. And then you're, then you're off, you yeah. know, like we did. On those big films, it, it felt like that, that company thing, it wasn't happening. It felt really strange that you didn't see people and you only see them on set. There was never any banter. There was never, you know, discussion. And that felt very strange for me. I felt very isolated. And actually, I kept turning around thinking, hang on a minute, this is what I wanted. I wanted these roles. I wanted, you know, big film roles. But it really frustrated me. And at the end of that, I felt quite low. Because in the end, I just thought, God, this is a massive waste of money. (laughs) And I was quite, you know, there's things that, the money that went on certain things, I was like, that's just ridiculous. And it, it pained me to see it, you know. Just mad things like the, the amount of food that got wasted. Just And it really upset me. Yeah. And so I came out of that and I really... And then it went down like a fart in a spacesuit, you know. Then it came out and everybody hated it. I mean, And it was ridiculed. And I went to the States to do the junket. And it was... A, it was panned. I was panned. Uh, everything and the big thing for me about criticism when I when you when I get criticised, I don't it doesn't bother me if if people criticise me and I think oh well you just don't know what you are talking about or oh, that's you've you've misread that or you but when they criticise you and you think yeah and I knew that at the time and I never said anything right and that was basic for me was the, all the things they picked at which was, was script stuff really and and, and certain, the way certain scenes were played. I sort of knew it as I was in it, but I was so naive I couldn't go, well, hey, 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 wait a minute. Even though we were doing 70 takes most of the time, I was just thinking, this is killing my brain. I don't know. So it was a great learning curve. I certainly learnt a lot from it, from a film point of view. But I I did walk away from it thinking, that's not the job I want to do. I don't want to do that.
0: But also you say that, before, that's what you wanted. But you didn't know what it was. No, no. What you wanted, want, really, no. did you? But you I loved it, films.
1: Yeah, of course. You know, I loved watching those films. I loved, I mean, and the first basic instinct I thought was a work of genius I Loved it. So, you know, they were my entertainment. And I would go and I'd, I'd watch movies and it's such a wonderful thing for me, you know, as it was growing up, was going to those films, going to the Odeon and watching those movies. Great. So to be in one, And it to turn out to be, you know, uh, not a wonderful experience was really heartbreaking, really. I've since had great experiences and done those similar movies and had just a ball because I've known how to negotiate it. But at that time, it was my first one. And I was... uh, I'm sure
0: it wasn't as chaotic as that sounded.
1: It was just crazy, you know, really crazy.
0: Did that change... After that, did it change your perspective on what you wanted from a career?
1: not what i wanted from a career but how i would be inside you know that the, how i would uh, create the atmosphere around myself that i wanted i wouldn't be a hostage to fortune so you know if i was in a, an a usually when i'm in the theater or i'm doing a f- tv i can have a discussion with my fellow actors and my and my director and say hey this is not working on this, let's try this, or how do you feel about that, or play, you know, basically play. Uh, and on this film, I wasn't, uh, that play wasn't happening. There was a real hierarchical thing. Right. While. And I, I, you know, since then, and uh, subsequently, I w- I've been able to sort of fight my corner a little bit, have my voice heard, uh, be a bit more of a pain in the ass, really, I guess, about saying, I'm not happy with that. And that, that is a different side of me because when I've worked in the past, it's been, uh, and, you know, when you're working with companies, there's a, there's a collegiate way of doing it. You you know, there's There's a a balance. There's a balance and there's a company feeling and, you know, you all get on, you're all there to do the same job. There's a respect. Uh, So I hadn't really had to fight for my voice in the past in the way that I did there. And I didn't, and I, and I didn't fight for it. I just let it go. And I trusted people, and then in the end, I thought I, I need to be noisier here. You know, that was that was the one.
0: So again, still a learning curve doing something like that. Always
1: a learning curve, yeah. I mean, really, I think the one thing that was different was I saw, yeah, I saw a waste of money. I mean, I don't care if the, if, if films cost a lot of money, and you're seeing it on the set, you're seeing it on the screen. You know, that you can see it. But there was a lot of money there that just got wasted, and I, I found that quite tough.
0: Where were you within yourself after that? Was it quite... Because it wasn't the greatest experience, obviously, but did you feel quite deflated Yeah, as I did. A person?
1: I, I felt... I took full responsibility for the terrible reviews, and I, I took a lot of responsibility for it. And I felt quite exposed by it really as well yeah I mean I got I got quite a lot of funny stories out of it none of which I'll tell you now but uh I got I got quite a lot of sort of uh you know dinner party chat about it uh which made me laugh but uh you know cuz I spent most of my time naked in the in the film which was hilarious but um you know it but I I did feel quite exposed and on my own where which I would never done before. You know, all the jobs I've done before and since, actually, I would say, not that they're ensemble, but there's a group of people in it. Yeah. You know, there's there's a real company side to it, and in that, I didn't. I felt like I was right on my own, and that was hard. And do you read reviews in general? I do read reviews. Yeah, I do. I mean, I I did Julius Caesar recently, and and at the bridge, and I didn't read reviews for that. Why? I, I just decided not to. I was um, I was having such a good time. And actually, you know, when you're in the theatre, I don't think I read reviews for Hangman either. When you're in theatre, you know, you've still got three months to do. So, you know, the, the reviews come out. And actually, a good review can really get you. Oh, yeah. Misstep you as well. You yeah. know, you can be in a good review and it can say, oh, I love that moment when he goes... Do, do, do.
0: That moment's fucked. That's never out, coming back. You're out
1: the window Yeah. Then. So that's the thing for me. So I I sort of protect myself from them in that way. Not because, oh, I don't read... And also the other thing about reviews as an actor, certainly in the theatre, is they've got nothing to do with you. Because, you know, you're only reading a review if you're thinking of going to see the show. If you're in the show, you've got to go anyway. So it's like, why read them? So I don't read... I didn't read them for that, and I didn't read them for Hangman. I do read them for telly and film, uh, just because...
0: Because it's in the past, because it's, it's done. There's nothing
1: I can do about yeah. it. It's all boxed <laughs> off. So, and it's about how this show is going to do, I think, you know, and what people are saying about it. But in theatre, I tend not to. Because you know, they can only, good, bad, or indifferent, they can only fuck me up, really.
0: David Morrissey, thank you so much for coming on. Thank
1: you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: And another episode is done, and what a belter to kick off twenty nineteen with David Morrissey. What did I tell you? Do you know what i mean it's it, the, when you talk with david, there's something beautifully considered about his his, his uh, ongoing conversation and it's not that he's considered or guarded it's that he thinks he filters through his brain instead of like someone like me who has like. Uh, a sort of a leaky bucket hole brain when it just sort of spews out. Um, and I love him and I can't thank him enough for coming on and sharing. And he didn't think that we we're going to be delving into the insides of Basic Instinct 2, which was a belter of a moment. Um, so that that's it. Until next week, I've been Craig Parkinson, he's been Producer Griff, and this has been the Two Shot Podcasts. Take care. Bye-bye. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens.